Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This morning, Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson as we reveal extraordinary steps the government is taking to get gangs vaccinated. Look, I have no time for the gangs. I don't have any sympathy for them, uh, but the number one priority here has to be to stop COVID-19. Then, a COVID-19 triumph. Middlemore Hospital has treated more than 80 Delta patients in its emergency department. But so far, no one, no staff or patients has caught Delta from an exposure event at Middlemore. And as David Seymour rides high in the polls, we look back at ACT's colourful history. And I've said frequently, for good reason and bad, that he is, he is tarnished in some way. And I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm saying this in front of you, friend. So many classic moments. We'll get to that shortly, but we begin with COVID-19. Q&A can exclusively reveal the government has taken the extraordinary step of directing a cabinet minister to meet with gangs to try and encourage them to be vaccinated for COVID-19. The meetings happened on Friday night. Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson and Police Deputy Commissioner Wally Homaha met on Zoom with representatives from four different New Zealand gangs. Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson is with us now live. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. I realise this is a sensitive subject, but what can you tell us about those meetings? Well, what I can tell you is all of us agree that uh, Delta does not discriminate. So it's not just about uh, any one community. This is about the public health of, of all New Zealanders. And so, uh, you know, rather than talk about it and, and use the gangs as political tools, um, I, I've asked them, can, could they front up and could we have a talk about you know, where they were going, where they were with vaccination. So myself and Wally Homaha have met with uh, different presidents of some of the major gangs to try and map out a bit of a strategy. And I I'm pleased that they've fronted. I'm, I can't buy into what the opposition are doing and just run down the scumbucket criminal line. We we've got to do something. We've got to look after all New Zealanders, Jack. So this is not just about Māori or Māori families. This is a public health crisis. And so if, if something goes wrong in a Māori community, the flow on will be to, uh, be to other New Zealanders. So, you know, I've got to get in there and uh, I've got a history in this area. So I was pleased to uh, meet with them on Friday and, uh, you know, it was a good start. What gangs did you meet with? No, I can't reveal those gangs. You're talking some of the major gangs in this country. Not at this stage, but th th that will all be revealed, Jack. I mean, you saw the Black Power last night uh, on your news, mm. Mark Pittman, and, and 100, of them 100 of them lined up. I was really pleased to see that. I know Mark. I went to school with Mark. I played rugby with Mark. I know the, the history of these guys. And, and, and they are working with my cousin and the Rangi McLean and Manurewa. You know, these are, these are people we know. Mm. There was some leadership shown by mark in the black power i want to replicate that duplicate that right across the spectrum so all new zealanders can be safe you know someone's got to get in there rather than talk about it uh, watch for the press releases from uh, from the opposition later on and all the nonsense you know this is i can't play politics here we can't play politics here we've got to look after the safety of all Kiwis, and that's right. what this is all about. OK, I want to put this to you, Minister. I've heard from an independent source that as well as the mongrel mob and Black Power, you met with representatives of the tribesmen. Is that correct? No, as I said, I'm not going to confirm uh, the gangs who I've met with, but, you know, these the guys who I've met with, uh, and, and some women, uh, are leaders, presidents, uh, and I thank them for uh, um, taking the time with me. I thank them in terms of 
this commitment. You know, there is, okay, you've got these young ones who will never listen, uh, but I spoke with a few young ones too. We have got a national public health crisis. Someone's got to work with the gangs. Someone's got to engage with the gangs. Maybe that someone should be me because I've worked with gangs for many, many years, uh, uh, Jack. Um, my organisations, we've mm. had the gangs around us. They've worked with us. Uh, and that relationship has it's just got to be utilised, and I'm trying to use that experience along with Wally Homaha, who's got a long history too. Why, in this area. Why, why does someone have to meet with the gangs? There will be many people watching this right now who say, you know what, if the gangs don't want to get vaccinated, the gangs want to expose themselves to more risk from COVID-19, given the harm they cause in our communities, good riddance. Uh, no, the problem is, is uh, as we know, COVID. COVID doesn't discriminate. So there could be a flow on to uh, the Māori community. But this is not just about Māori. This is about a family. This is about uh, mukapunas. This is about mm. parents. But all families, all parents, all mukapunas, Māori, Pākehā, people right across this country. And if we can't tidy this up, I mean, some of our, some of these gangs, they, they operate in the dark. They don't, they're not part of mainstream. They don't, they, you know, the people don't know them. You can't have a problem just on its own festering. Uh, and, and, and some of the gang leaders are doing some great work. We see what the Kingdom's doing in Hamilton. Mark Pittman yesterday. Um, I, mm. I, I congratulate some of them. We've got to build on that type of work. Harry Tam has been up here uh, doing doing some good work. Uh, Was Harry Tam in these that. meetings? And. Uh, um Harry wasn't there uh, uh, yesterday. He was uh, he was busy, but he's well aware of them, and uh, um, and he'll be, he'll play a part uh, going forward because he's you know he's uh, he's on the ground. He's got a lot of years of experience. So so, so what is what was agreed in these meetings? Is, you said that you're talking about the what, strategy what was, for getting these um, these gangs vaccinated. Will you be offering incentives? Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. You know, obviously um, we will try and offer some support, but I can tell you right now there'll be no dollars or money going from me or from my office into any gang, um, gang's accounts, OK? So you can, New Zealanders can be assured of that. But if there's some resources later down the track... Uh, that we might have to provide to support whānau. This is about... See, when I see these gangs, I, mm. I, I see their partners. I see their, I see their mukapunas. I see their, their tamariki. And so if we can do anything yeah. uh, to support and add, get, get some resources to them to help those whānau, um, I, I'm not opposed to what, that because all New Zealanders will benefit, uh, Jack. What kind of resources? Oh, well, yeah. well, you know, if you have to put a bus on, you know, I'm not, we're not talking about million-dollar checks here. Right. You know, if you, if you have to put a bus on or you have to get some resources to get them there, mm. if you have to work with the Māori provider, some of the gangs have been blocked going mm. in to get vaccinated. So we must aim for a 90 95%, maybe 100% vaccination so, rate with these guys. Uh, and, but, but the communities have got to work with them uh, because we have to protect the country. So will you look to send vaccinators into gang communities? So we, we have just started our kōrero. That was uh, yesterday. There's more kōrero going to happen mm. uh, during the week, and we're going to push towards our National Vaccination Day, which, uh, you know, the Prime Minister's been talking about, and we really want a, a peak uh, with mm. regards to that next Saturday. I mean, the Kingdom, for instance, have a huge day. So so I'll be, I'll be working every day to try and get a strategy in, in place so we can get, so uh, you know, so many uh, vaccinated, heaps, hopefully hundreds, mm. are vaccinated next week capitalising on our, our National Vaccination Day, Jack. D did the Prime Minister direct you to have these meetings? 
when you say the Prime Minister, we, we, we have talked about it in terms of uh, uh, fellow ministers and Cabinet, and I put my hand up uh, because I have the background and experience, and, uh, and, and her and, and all other ministers have said, yeah, well, let's you know, go for it and, and let's see, see where we go, because uh, they don't know where it's going to go. It's really, it's really up to me. This all could have fallen apart on Friday. But I want to help. I want to support um, uh, our country, and, and this is the best way I can do it, because I have a, a experience and history in this area, um, Jack. But if we are talking about gangs, and like I said, I've heard from a source that the tribesmen are involved. If we are talking about gangs that peddle drugs, methamphetamine, uh, are responsible for gross violence in our communities. What is the risk that you are being naive here, Minister, that you're going in and trying to have a heart-to-heart -heart chat with people who, frankly, don't give a toss? I've been having those heart-to-heart -heart chats with those people, Jack, for 40 years. And I've uh, worked with uh, lots of different types. Mm. My mother was the longest-serving parole board member in this country, 20 years. On my marae at Ngāwhare Wātea, we have had, uh, sadly, well, maybe I shouldn't say sadly because they, they came right, but we've had murderers, rapists, pedophiles. They've all come through our marae. Mm. Uh, I, 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 so I've, I've gone down that track. I, I, I know all their tricks. Uh, and, uh, um, and so you just know that. Mm. You know, I'm not naive. This is not a five-minute thing for me. I've been in this area for many, many years, and so no, no one can pull the wool over my eyes, Jack. Let me ask about the Māori vaccination progress more broadly. Last <coughs> week on Q&A, uh, Te Pāti Māori co-leader Debbie Ngāriwa-Packer was highly critical of Māori vaccination rates. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. There hasn't been a really strong Māori COVID response. There have been inequities all the way through. They um, went through a, a one-shoe-size-fits-all you know, approach with the vaccination, for example. What is your response to her criticisms? Oh, no, I don't agree with her at all. Um, uh, Penny Hennard has been leading the way for us there, and he's out on the road now. We had record vaccinations. Minister Hennard had record vaccinations in the last couple of days, 20% up. Look, when we started this, uh, we, we prioritised the over 65s. Um, and I think we've made a good effort in terms of vaccinations. Uh, because we weren't perfect doesn't detract from the good that the Māori caucus, Minister Hennari, Minister Davis, all our ministers are doing on the ground. And I, and I congratulate them working with our Māori providers. No, De Debbie's wrong. We've, we've got given over $75 million in the last couple of months to our Māori providers. Uh, we're there all the time. We've got ministers working with them at the coalface. Were we perfect? No, but that shouldn't detract from, from from us being good. And uh, um, the other reality, and the other point is this, Jack, that, that the, the big group of Māori uh, who could not be vaccinate, vaccinated are in the age 12 to uh, 40 group. Now, a lot of people are missing this. They were, not, they were in our priority four area. Mm. They're in our priority four area. Now, they could not be vaccinated till September the 1st. So obviously there was going to be a lag. But in terms of Komatua, our over 65s, they were prioritised at the at the start. Uh, so they've got we, we've got them up to 90%. But don't tell me that we're not prioritising Māori. Jack, you imagine if we had a promoted our our priority four group, the 12 to 35, 12 to 40 group, uh, at, at the early stages. Those same people who said we're not prioritising Māori, and I'm talking about ACT mm. and the National Party here, would have called and, and Winston. They would have called us racist, separatists, uh, separatists, 
apartheid supporters, you can't win. But we, we they became eligible uh, from September the 1st, and, and, and things are going through the roof now in terms of the vaccinations. Our Māori MPs are on yeah. the street doing the business. And, and so you can't win, you see. So the Māori Party are wrong, just like they're wrong about Oranga Tamariki when they had a crack at uh, Minister Davis, who they said was uh, weak because he didn't adopt the Oranga Tamariki uh, recommendations. Minister Davis uh, adopted the 25 recommendations, every recommendation from, uh, from his um, Oranga Tamariki group. That was brilliant work from the minister. So if he's weak, Debbie Pecker, so is Nader Glavich, your former president of the Māori Party, who was leading the way in terms of those uh, recommendations. So you can't win. Okay. Māori Party don't get their way, and then they say, say we're weak. They're wrong. Back, well back, done, Minister Davis. Back to COVID-19. If the general population vaccination right. rates were the same as Māori rates at the start of this week, and just 56% of the eligible general population had been vaccinated, would Cabinet have relaxed some of those restrictions in Auckland this week? Uh, well, I can't, I can't uh, speculate down, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of that, Jack. Would you, you know, have supported uh, it? This is a moving... Um, quite possibly, quite possibly, but, uh, you know, you can't... Uh, you know, we're, we're all participating in those decisions. Those are major decisions. Mm. And my heart goes out to a lot of the businesses right now uh, and people who are breaching the border borders. They should know better than that. But, uh, you know, we are very aware of uh, um, where, where things are at in terms of business in this country uh, at, at the moment. Uh, and despite all the doom and gloom uh, predicted by yourself and some of your media mates, uh, on the ground... Uh, New Zealanders are happy. New, Zealand are uh, New Zealanders are pleased with our response. Yes, what? we might have had a rough week, but yeah. let's, not for let's not forget the stats, Jack. We've got some of the best statistics in the world, and, mm. uh, and things are getting better the, the uh, by the day, Jack. Stop all your doom and gloom Well, the stuff. stat that sticks in my mind with What's respect, that? Minister, is the fact that just 59% of eligible Māori have received a first jab at the moment. We, I know that this week has been better in well, terms of vaccination rates, you've had a surge and all that sort of thing, but that is an alarming statistic, that Māori are more than 20% behind the general population for first vaccinations. Before we let you go, do you support the High Court action uh, seeking Māori NHI data so that uh, community providers can go and directly contact Māori who are unvaccinated at this stage? Yes, well, just uh, just before that, uh, we're 20% behind, but you're not comparing apples with apples. You know that there's a whole diff there's a whole lot of reasons why Maori are behind. Do I support what you're talking about in the court? Look, I'm the minister for for Maori well-being, for the for the health of Maori. I'll do anything I can to support what's uh, happening in that area. This is a really tough area, and it's a really sensitive area. Uh, so I understand what's happening uh, with John uh, Tamahere, who I'm working with. Closely, my so yes, head, they should get the data. Trust. But no, but what I'm saying is the best thing is if they can get in a room and work this out. It's really sad that it's going to court. I, I know both sides, but should they, say should they the be able to access that data? Wellbeing. Yeah. Well, I, I want Māori to be in a much better space, but what I want is, for, of, should they be able to, I think it's a no-brainer that we want um, as many Māori as vaccinated as possible, but uh, I understand both sides. The best thing that can happen is that they get in <laughs> give, front of uh, Give me a, a yes or no, Willie. Should, should they get the data? <laughs> no, you, no, no. 
I, I don't play I don't play your games. You know <laughs> what I'm saying. It's a very All sad position we're, uh, yeah. that we're we're in. And, and, and let's good luck to them getting it together. And I'm doing a lot of great right. work with the Waipanata Trust. Well, well done, John Tamahiti. It's going Tena well. Kia Thank you very much for your time. That is Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson. After the break on Q&A, as COVID spreads to Bay of Plenty, Waikato and Northland, what can we learn from an Auckland hospital holding the line? Hoki mai, welcome back. Bleakness abounds regarding the state of the pandemic at the moment, but this morning we want to share with you a success story of sorts as well. Middlemore Hospital is at the centre of New Zealand's outbreak. The region it serves has seen more COVID cases than any other DHB. And so far, 80 people have been treated at Middlemore's emergency department for the Delta variant of COVID-19. But despite surprise walk-in cases and patients in ICU, no one during the Delta outbreak has caught COVID-19 from an exposure event at Middlemore Hospital. Dr. Peter Watson is the Chief Medical Officer at Middlemore and is with us now this morning live. Tēnā Peter, thanks for being with us. How have you managed to contain the virus within the hospital? Well, we've done a lot in a lot of different places. The first thing is we're really good at screening people when they come into the hospital. So when they front up to the emergency department, we ensure that we take a really close uh, history and checklist of, of potential uh, infections. Uh, they may have been exposed in other places. And if they are detected at that stage, they go into a different stream, a COVID stream. So that means that right from the get-go, uh, we're identifying those at most risk. In that stream, people wear full PPE, uh, nearly all of our staff are vaccinated now, fully vaccinated, which is really essential. And we make sure we manage those people in single rooms until we've got their swab test back. Uh, if we don't uh, detect somebody at the front door in that place, we still are very cautious about trying to find out anybody who potentially, despite the fact of not being exposed that they know of, whether they might also have COVID-19. So we have a really low threshold. So we're testing the majority of people who are coming into the emergency department, not everybody, but we're testing lots of people and those are some of the ways we're making sure we detect every case that comes into the hospital now. Have there been mistakes in your COVID-19 response that perhaps other DHBs and hospitals can learn from? Well, look, we're always learning to do things better. Uh, so very early on in the Delta outbreak, we had a case that ended up in a surgical ward uh, and they had abdominal pain, but no other symptoms of COVID and no history. Now, at that point, that wasn't on our checklist of symptoms because I guess it's one of the the less frequent symptoms of COVID-19. And so mm. what we learned was to make sure that we included all of the possible symptoms. So that was one example. And, and obviously we are seeing the spread of COVID-19 around the country at the moment. A case recorded in Bay of Plenty, case in Northland, Waikato as well. What can other DHBs learn from Middlemore's Delta response? Well, I think the most important thing is you have to really be focused on trying to find every potential case that's walking in the hospital. So the testing technologies are changing and we're learning about that as well. But at the moment, ensure that rigorous checks of everybody coming in, that's patients, visitors, ensuring all staff are vaccinated. But we're also looking to deploy some of the rapid antigen testing. And we're not through that uh, testing phase yet, but we think that might also add something to what we're doing. Tell us a bit, a bit about how that testing phase has been going for the rapid antigen testing. H have the tests picked up any COVID positive cases? 
So they have. So your Middlemore Hospital, as we know, is you know, ground zero for COVID, uh, over 80 cases. That means every day COVID cases are fronting up at the hospital. Uh, so what we have been doing is using the gold standard, the PCR testing for everyone, and it remains the, the test of choice for the diagnosis of COVID. Mm. But in addition to that, what we've started to do now is to look at the rapid antigen test. Now that's a much quicker, rapid uh, test done at the front door, it takes 10 to 15 minutes. But what we know is that it even if somebody has COVID, they might return a negative COVID uh, uh, rapid antigen test, even mm. if they're positive. So we've been doing them side by side, both tests. And what we found, we found people who have had a positive uh, rapid antigen test have had a positive PCR test. So that, that confirms that it works. But also, we've also had the experience of somebody with COVID-19 with a positive PCR test who had a negative rat test right and that just shows that it's not as sensitive so that's part of what we're dealing with now as delta spreads throughout um the community and we're going to see more cases it will be i think uh finding the right place to use the rapid antigen test alongside the pcr testing it won't replace it but it will mm. be able to be used in more places as we as we figure out where that might be, and it might be in workplaces, mm. it might be for staff surveillance in other areas, but in terms of diagnosing uh, COVID illness, PCR will remain the gold standard. It's a complementary option, isn't it? Can, can I ask how many positive COVID-19 test results have you had from rapid antigen testing? I can't tell you the exact number. Uh, we're about 60 to 80 tests a day currently in the in the emergency department and I know that we've had we have we are detecting positive tests but as I say on average uh, 80 positive cases at the moment and we've only just started really deploying that and figuring out how to use it mm. um, actually on a practical level as well so the cases are growing as we're going forward. New Zealand this week recorded the death of a man from COVID-19. Your staff in the Middlemore ICU had been treating that person for 40 days. I just wondered what, what kind of impact a death from COVID-19 has on your staff, especially after they've been treating him intimately for that period of time. Yeah, well, this is part of the life of, of a health professional, and particularly in a hospital and particularly in intensive care. This is something that we deal with day in, day out with a whole range of illnesses. So in that way, it's similar to other situations. It's a daily occurrence and that's what health professionals are trained for. That's what they do. So it, it is challenging and it is difficult. Of course, that's the, that's the concern with COVID, that if we don't manage it as we have been doing as a country, that we'd see more and more deaths. So any death uh, creates you know, concerns that uh, we need to do better, we need to do more. And I guess is why people in the hospital particularly, but I think also in the wider health system, in primary care, in the community, everybody's really focused on continuing to vaccinate and reduce mm. the likelihood of people getting really sick from COVID because that's what's getting people into hospital and that's what's getting people into ICU. The vast majority are not vaccinated. Uh, so we need to try and continue to remember that COVID is a really, really serious illness, not for everybody, but for some people particularly the older people, and especially for those people who are unimmunised. So that's mm. why this focus. It's also really challenging to look after. People have seen around the world images of what it's like to manage COVID, uh, full PPE, 
lots of intensive care. It's actually physically demanding work and it's mentally stressful as well because of the worry and the fear about COVID. So, you know, on lots of levels, it's yeah. been hugely challenging. And I just really want to thank everybody in the hospitals. It's not just in Middlemore, but, you know, across Auckland and now across the country who are going to be in the place to have to manage us as we move into uh, you know, a surge with COVID mm. Delta variant as we go forward over the coming months. Doctor, do you have sufficient staff for all of your ICU and high dependency beds? Well, what we've had in this um, outbreak so far, it's been amazing. We've had people come from other DHBs into Middlemore, so we've been really fortunate. You know, we're not just one hospital, we work as part of uh, citywide uh, network of hospitals, and I'm talking every day to those people. We've had staff uh, go from different places to help. And you know, we had staff, uh, intensive care nurses that came from out of Auckland. We mm. had uh, doctors come out from outside of Auckland. They came to actually help us at the point where we were really uh, in the peak of it at this point. So that's been amazing and really good. Of course, going forward, this is one of the challenges. Even if we have all the sufficient facilities and beds and all of that, we need staff. So mm. one of the things we're doing is to ensure that we figure out how to do that safely so we don't lose staff. So it's the correct use of PPE, making sure people are vaccinated. Yeah. It's about how we run our rosters. But we're also looking at roles. So it might be that we actually get other people to do things differently. As we've seen, uh, and we're learning from overseas, we're talking to our colleagues in Australia and the UK, the US and other places about how have they done it because they've already been here so we don't have to reinvent the wheels. So we're learning about, for instance, many people with mild COVID illness will mm. be managed in the home and in the community. We won't need everybody in the hospital. So how we do that, those are the sorts of things we're looking at how to manage with the workforce we have. So just, I know there's been a lot of concern about resourcing. Have you, has your resource for ICU in terms of personnel changed since the start of this pandemic? Does Middlemore have uh, more or fewer ICU staff than you did at the start of 2020? I don't have the exact numbers on, on me. Uh, what I can tell you is that we still uh, are short of enough staff across the health system. We mm. knew when we came into COVID that the health system was short. Mm. short of nurses, short of particular types of um, other clinicians like anaesthetists, intensivists and those sorts of things. But what we are, and what we also have, of course, is this is a long time lag, right, to train up, to, tra to train an intensivist is, you know, well over 10 years from start to finish. So intensive care nursing, again, it's not just the three years nursing training, it's all the yeah. training on top of that to get a, a nurse to that point. So these are long periods. So it takes a while, but we are focused on that and we're bringing people in from other areas to get them up to speed so they can provide that care. I suppose the concern is that if COVID-19 spreads around the country, we won't be able to bring staff in to Middlemore, every DHB will essentially be left to try and defend its own patch. Is that a concern? Well, we're all going to have to work together. That's absolutely the way we're going to do it. So what we've been doing at Middlemore is, uh, because we have looked after more COVID cases than anybody else, I think it's about a third of the entire country's mm. COVID cases outside of the MIQ cases, we're sharing our learnings. Just as we've learned from overseas, we are now sharing all of our learnings to how um, people can do that so they don't have to learn because part of it's just getting up to speed and so we can do that virtually um, uh, with regular catch-ups uh, teaching each other about what to do and how to do it. 
and uh, and how you use your staff uh, in a way that means you can deliver what you need to. Of course, the biggest thing here is about trying to reduce the peak in the surge that's coming, and the way to do that again is through vaccination, uh, and and a range mm. of public health controls. So this idea, that's that's the whole strategy still, and yeah. we're very much focused on that. We need everybody to do that and to find the cases that are out there so we can reduce that impact. So, you know, yeah. if we have a ward full of COVID at Middlemore, we might have uh, several cases in ICU, and that's going to be a lot better than, for instance, a 1,000 cases, et cetera. So yeah. that's, that's why this remains so much the focus of our yeah. attention. Your staff have, have done an amazing job, up, you know, up to this point. Are they stealing themselves, and are you stealing yourself for a surge in COVID cases in the coming months? Well, I think it's uh, yeah, we are, and it's it's um, on the one hand, we've learned a lot. On the other hand, we've done really well to date. We are concerned about what the future looks like. Uh, we are preparing for that at a whole range of different mm. levels. So, I think preparation, uh, stealing ourselves f around how we're going to do this, how we're going to arrange our hospital, how we're going to uh, support our staff, um, how we actually plan this going forward is very much, but again, it's a whole system, so we are going to be mm. looking to our community partners, our NGO, our GPs, mm. um, and to work as a city in this case and as a wider country about how we share those resources to make sure um, that we can do it because it's also BAU, it's not mm. just COVID. We've got all of the other business that we do, people still coming with heart attacks, having babies, mm. having strokes, having accidents. We've got to run the, the health system as well. So again, it's how are we going to do all of that uh, going forward? So there, mm. there are multiple challenges uh, and we continue to focus on all of the preparation so that we can manage that. Well, good luck, keep up the good work. And pass on our um, best regards to all of your staff as well. That's Dr Peter Watson, who's the Chief Medical Officer of the County's Manukau District Health Board at Middlemore Hospital. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at Q&A, uh, NZ Q&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, we look back at the ACT Party's colourful history in Parliament. The highs and the awkward lows. Pleaded guilty to any other charges in New Zealand. What are you talking about exactly? Hoki mai, welcome back to Q&A. The ACT Party is marking 25 years in Parliament. But although the party's riding high in the polls at the moment, Sir Roger Douglas's brainchild hasn't had the easiest of political rides. Shortly, we will speak with party leader David Seymour. But first, here's Connor Sterling on a wild quarter century. Tonight, Sir Roger is on the comeback. 1993 and controversial former Labour Finance Minister Sir Roger Douglas and National Cabinet Minister Derek Quigley had a new political vehicle, initially coy about the move. Do you rule out a return to politics, sir? I've got no intention uh, of returning to politics at this point of time. It'd end up being another year before ACT, the party, was formed. You're going to have a party that will develop out of the Association of Consumers and Taxpayers. While Douglas led the party from the inception, Richard Preble would take the reins in 1996. I am told that uh, I'm very likely to win. A fierce fight in the seat of Wellington Central. Six members of Parliament. Six members of Parliament. Six members of Parliament. 
ultimately resulting in a Preble win, meaning ACT qualified for a healthy eight MPs. 99 and 02 were ACT's high watermark with nine MPs, but from there the wheels started to fall off the bus. Wayward MP Donna Awatiri Huata was suspended in 2003 amid multiple allegations of misuse of taxpayer money. I'm extraordinarily sad that they're going to take that step to, to um, suspend me. Preble would resign the leadership in 2004, MP Rodney Hyde stepping into his shoes. <laughs> Thank you everyone for coming along. He'd go on to win the Epsom seat from National in 2005, one that ACT has held ever since. The use of his yellow jacket attracted the interest of the Electoral Commission and police in 2008. The Hydemobile, not so much. The perk buster was himself busted the following year, using taxpayer funds to take his partner on overseas trips. But Hyde did have some wins, pushing to create the Auckland Super City as local government minister. By now, ACT had five MPs, but just one would throw it into a tailspin. David Garrett suggested unfit parents should be sterilised, but then a previous conviction of assault in Tonga emerged. And while not convicted on this... I obtained the birth certificate of a child born around the time I was born, but who died in infancy. He'd later resign. A clumsy coup saw former national leader Don Brash take over from Rodney Hyde hours after becoming a party member, a bewildered-looking Hyde holding it together as his friend tore strips off. I'm saying this in front of you, friend, but, but I mean, to some extent, he's been the victim of, of a media witch hunt. The infamous cup of tea between John Key and Epsom candidate John Banks dominated the lead-up to 2011 as a signal to national supporters to back act over the national candidate. Brash would resign on election night, with Banks the only MP returned. The former Auckland mayor wouldn't last the term as a minister, standing trial for filing a false electoral return, although the conviction would later be overturned. Charter schools survived the election, however, 10 operating at their peak. 2014 went much the same for ACT. New and politically inexperienced leader Jamie White failed to win a list seat. Through the years of turbulence, David Seymour twice ran unsuccessful races in Auckland seats and spent five years working for a Canadian think tank. The public health benefits of sanitation that we get from sewers, high-value public works like that make taxes seem trivial. But in 2014, he got the chance to run in Epsom. Hi. 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 And campaigned well enough to become ACT's sole MP and then leader. Seymour tried all sorts to build awareness of the party. But the results for the party in 2017 were still dire. The polls started to turn for ACT in 2019 through Seymour's opposition to gun law changes. He also pushed through the end-of-life choice bill, 65% of voters ticking yes for it in last year's binding referendum. That same election, ACT won 10 seats off the back of a disaffection on the right with both the government and national. And with polls of late showing the party could do even better, David Seymour is now second only to Jacinda Ardern as preferred Prime Minister. The question now, can ACT hold it together until 2023? Only Labour and National have been in Parliament continuously for longer than the ACT party. Under David Seymour's leadership, the party's hitting record polling highs, and he is with us now. Hi. Um, let's start off with the success. <laughs> hi, hi, hi. You have, we, hey, when did you lose the Canadian accent? 
Um, pretty rapidly, uh, when I came <laughs> back and started knocking on doors, I, I needed people to understand I was from here. Throughout all of ACT's leaders, you've taken the party from the lowest MP count to the highest. Where did you succeed when some of your predecessors failed? Well, I think, first of all, the last few years has been a period of stability, and it's allowed us to focus on our core business, which is that we're representation. Rep we're representative, sorry. That business is representation. And the problem with a lot of politics at the moment is you've got a political class that's out of touch, that's not listening, that's not connecting uh, with the concerns of voters. And you see that in, um, in the problems that are building up in New Zealand. You see educational attendance, educational achievement. You look at the housing market, you look at mental health, you look at our productivity. We've got a lot of problems uh, that are growing. Actors listened to people that are expressing that, and particularly through the COVID period, which has accentuated uh, all of those I've named. Uh, and we've put forward positive, practical solutions. And the message is that we're actually working for you. Uh, we believe the politician's job is to make people's lives better. And rather than the politicians and their positions and the drama, uh, we've just focused on saying, here's a way that New Zealand could be, uh, and we're prepared to play a constructive role in that. And you see that we've done that through COVID. We've put out you know, three policy papers throughout this pandemic saying, look, there's aspects of what the government's doing that we agree with. I think they've made the right strategic call in some respects. Um, but they haven't prepared for the future. And where we are now mm. is that we have a government with a strategy that no longer works, that's failing before our eyes, and yet the new strategy hasn't been prepared because they spent 18 months, frankly, self-congratulating. Uh, as a result, we're caught between that old strategy and the new strategy that's not ready, and mm. we've got chaos and uncertainty in the middle. I think ACT's played a really honourable role in saying, well, you know, rapid antigen testing should have been allowed months ago, uh, as you saw in your previous story. It's now playing an important role at Middlemore, uh, but it didn't help that the government actually bans it uh, from being imported uh, and has done so for over a year. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about ACT's position throughout COVID-19. So I go back to August of last year. We must learn to live with it. Consistently throughout the pandemic, you have called for New Zealand to relax its COVID-19 restrictions for the borders to open. If indeed last year, when you first called for lockdowns to end in New Zealand, we had followed ACT advice, how many New Zealanders would have died from COVID-19 in the year that followed? Well, first of all, I think you're mischaracterising ACT's advice. Uh, we've always said that we need to balance COVID with other wellbeing needs that people have. You look at the effect it's having on the mental health of small business. You look at the fact that kids in Auckland have missed over 40 days of school mm. uh, each year, last year and this year. So you can play that game, but the answer is that had we taken ACT's advice and done better and smarter contact tracing, if we'd rolled out vaccination sooner, uh, if we had better testing technology, and now if we complete the three Ts, uh, testing, tra tracing, and new treatments, which again, we're behind in rolling those out, they can reduce hospitalisation, uh, we'd be in a much, much better position. Uh, of course, we can never answer hypotheticals, but what we've done consistently uh, is shown that it's not sustainable to lock down and lock out forever. Even just mm. the debt. Jack, let me give you a term that unfortunately we're going to hear for years. COVID debt. Whoever wins the next election 
is going to have to deal with the COVID debt, and that is going to severely constrain the options uh, that New Zealand has because we delayed opening up for such a long mm. period of time. Uh, we, we bore all of the other costs while we're doing that. Uh, we're going to end up in the same place as other countries sooner or later. It will have just taken longer and cost more. OK. I mean, you say we can't deal in hypotheticals, and we're not, are we? Because you have published a reopening plan for COVID-19. And essentially, the greater freedoms that we might expect by relaxing some restrictions, ending lockdowns, come at a cost in that we are inevitably exposed to a greater risk of COVID-19. What is an acceptable number of deaths per year for New Zealand from COVID-19 starting from now? Well, we'd love it to be zero, but we know that that's not going to be true. I think a better way to put it, Jack, is are we prepared uh, to spend vastly more, orders of magnitude more, uh, preventing COVID deaths than we are to prevent deaths from car crashes and cancers, mm. because that's what we're doing right now. And all of that money and resource that we're putting into those other causes, it's not just hypothetical, it will actually take money away uh, from being able to do other things that it, prolong yeah, that's New fine, Zealanders' but, but if you're lives gonna, when they face other threats. If your reopening plans that have any credibility, you have to surely take in both sides of the coin. Yes, we have greater freedoms and that might reduce the burden on small businesses, it might mean greater economic growth, but inevitably it also means more death. So I'm asking, asking you, if you want to have any credibility yeah. in these reopening plans, what do you think is an acceptable number of deaths from COVID-19 yeah. per year? Yeah, yeah. I think if, if you want to have any credibility as a questioner, you've got to accept that nobody knows what that number is. Uh, we may have a lot more deaths under the current government's approach uh, if we have an outbreak now that they're simply not prepared for. What we've said consistently is that we need to balance COVID and mm. other needs, and we need to have the best possible preparation for New Zealand inevitably rejoining the world. And that means, again, better testing, tracing and treatment. It means absorbing technology into the response. We propose that there should be more partnership with business and community mm. groups uh, to get vaccination done faster. So, you know, if you want to talk about what's credible, the first thing you've got to do is accept we can't lock down and lock out forever. The real question, and by the way, the government's not answering this question either because they know mm. uh, that they have to reconnect sooner or later. The real question is how soon do we do it? Mm. Because right now, uh, people are trapped between the strategy that didn't work, uh, the new strategy that isn't ready, mm. and all the while, all those other costs are mounting up. So what you might like to ask is how many deaths can we save in the long term by being prepared and being able to absorb a whole lot of other people's views and perspectives and technologies into our response. And I believe that X approach would actually save New Zealanders from dying of COVID-19 in the long term. Uh, it's not an either or, Jack. It's about well, being that, more creative that, to get well better results for everybody. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's well and good. And if you want to focus on all of those positive aspects of your approach, it's totally understandable. Mm. But again, there are two sides to this coin. Mm. The luxury of opposition is that you can try and deflect mm. the negative aspects yeah. of opening up. I, I want to know, would, would for example, 250 deaths from COVID-19 a year in New Zealand be acceptable for the sorts of freedoms that you think would allow for greater benefits to our society? Yeah, yeah, and, ag and again, I would say it's not actually a win-lose, it's a win-win. Uh, if you're able to ensure that we have the best possible response 
then you can minimize deaths when New Zealand inevitably reconnects with the rest of the world. Um, if you want to have an auction and how many people should die per party, that's one way of doing politics. Uh, Jack, but it's not the way that we prefer to do it. Well, it's not I'd the way you prefer, but, but it is the brutal reality of this virus, COVID isn't 3 it? Well, uh, no, it's, actu it's actually the reality of life, is that people die from a whole range of different things. Uh, the question is, what is the best possible response? Mm. And so for you to say that ACT is the only party that thinks we have to reconnect with the world, every party thinks we have to do that. Uh, our proposals are to do it quicker, to do it smarter, and to minimise all the other mm. kinds of pain. And let me give you another one, Jack. Every day in New Zealand, sadly, nine women are diagnosed with breast cancer when there's screening. Every day, as Brooke Van Velden, our deputy, has pointed out that there is no mm. screening going on and they weren't prepared to screen uh, during large parts of the lockdown, uh, nine women are walking around who don't know they have breast cancer. So again, we could play this game or we'll interview Jack. I'd quite like to get on some other um, topics after 25 years of ACT. Um, but let me ask you this, Jack. Um, how many breast cancer deaths do you think are acceptable by delaying ACT's plan and refusing to reconnect with the world in a safe way with the best possible technology. I hate to break it to you, I am not the elected official here. Yeah. Let me ask this, what, what no, job would you that's, want that's true, that's true, in a, but it, but it, in shows, a future it government. shows the validity of the question. Well, it's just the luxury Look, of opposition. No, to defend that to... point, it's the luxury of opposition, <laughs> isn't it? You can be critical, critical, critical and say, oh, these are all the things we're not doing. And you say, OK, well, what's the cost of following your plan? It's great that we have those benefits. What's the cost? You're not prepared to go there. We have all the variables. Yeah. We know vaccination rates. We know how infectious well, Delta is. With, we know our with, ICU capacity. We have all the variables. Yeah. You're not prepared to go yeah. there. That's fine. Mm. Let's move on. Let's talk about the party's future. Yeah. But with, with, um, re with, respect, with, re with respect, Jack, I'm just making the point that that, that cost applies to all plans. Absolutely. Um, and ours Absolutely. Would them. But look, look if, you ask what if you're asking what job I'd like, it's very simple, Jack. Um, imagine a person uh, who's born in New Zealand, maybe not born lucky. Um, does that person have a pathway to get an education that will equip them for the 21st century? Uh, is there a pathway to own a place of their own one day so that New Zealand mm. is a property-owning democracy? And are they part of an economy that's globally connected, uh, that is productive, um, that actually allows uh, New Zealand uh, to be a place that people want to come from, from all over the world and stay? Uh, so what sort of position would I like? Well, I'd like a position where we can deal with the terrible failings that we have in education, especially for those who may not be born so lucky. Uh, I want a position where we can actually make this country a place where it's easier to build a home. Uh, and I'd like a position where, we're in a, where I am able uh, to improve the environment for business, which is taking a huge beating at the mm. moment. And the problem is that this government is focused on dividing people and dividing wealth. You know, they try and make it harder mm. to do business, thinking that that will help workers. Actually, what they forget is that workers need business and vice versa. Uh, we've got to unite New Zealand behind good ideas so that this country is a better place for all. And right mm. now we're getting fantastic sales and marketing uh, from Jacinda Ardern and her government. Uh, but there's something wrong in the engineering department. Uh, they don't seem to be delivering uh, when it comes to uh, actually making it easier to build a home, actually improving school attendance right. and achievement, um, actually getting productivity growth off the floor. So that's the kind of position I'd like. W will you have any new big name candidates standing for ACT in the next election? 
I suspect we will, but we're still two years out and candidate recruitment mm. um, doesn't really start until you're a year out. So what, what I do know is that people from ACT uh, are coming, oh, sorry, people are coming to ACT uh, from across the political spectrum, uh, from all sorts of different previous positions, uh, because they like what ACT is saying. They like that what we say is based on listening to people's concerns mm. and people's aspirations, and they like the practicality uh, of our policies. I think if we keep doing that job as representatives, uh, then we're going to attract even more high-quality people who want to be ACT representatives. Well, congratulations on your 25th anniversary of parliamentary representation. We know the next month will be significant for you as the End of Life Choice Act comes into effect, so we look forward to speaking to you about that shortly. That is ACT leader David Seymour. Thank you very much. After the break, the Caymans, the British Virgin Isles and New Zealand. Once again, an international investigation reveals Kiwi trusts are a favourite choice for foreigners looking to hide their assets. The so-called Pandora Papers, not to be confused with the Panama Papers, this week revealed that New Zealand trusts have once again been used by people to avoid scrutiny and taxation. But this morning we want to tell you the story behind the story, the massive coordinated effort by journalists across the world to process and publicise the papers. One News reporter Katie Bradford was on a team of international journalists who together worked through millions of documents. And she's with us now. Kia ora, Katie. Where do the papers actually come from? Wow, that's a, that's a very good question. This is one of the biggest data leaks in history, over 11 million records. Now, they were given to the International Consortium of International Journalists uh, in batches over a number of months. There were no conditions put on this leak, uh, and, and, but uh, there was no conditions in terms of how they used, but it was very clear that they were not to be said where they came from. What they revealed was that 14 trusts are used around the world uh, for, uh, for people to put their money in and offshore trusts and these uh, the, the records are of those trusts but where they came from we don't know. Okay I've over the last few months seen you and New Zealand Herald journalist Matt Nippet looking extremely secretive in an office behind my <laughs> desk. How did you and the New Zealand Herald get involved? hoping you weren't going to notice us sitting there. Uh, so basically, the, we, TVNZ worked with the ICIJ on the Panama Papers, you may remember, a few mm. years ago. So the ICIJ came to us again and said, do you want to be involved in this project here at TVNZ? We said yes, the same with the Herald. Uh, and so that, that's how they work. They are a, a non-profit organisation based in Washington, D.C., and they have their own journalists, but they also work with over 100 media organisations around the world. And I guess the aim of ensuring that we get, they go to countries like ours is to to ensure these stories get out to as many mm. people as possible and that it has the credibility of TVNZ, of the New Zealand Herald, of the BBC, the Guardian, the Washington Post, some of the mm. big organisations. Th these are massive amounts of data though, millions of documents. How do you search them? Well, there's a, a, a data search engine, basically, and you go in there and you can type in whatever you want. Now, I uh, thought I'd take a look, and I typed in Jack Tame to see what dodgy dealings you may have been up to. Not all of this is illegal, of course, uh, but I had to tell you there were zero documents relating to Jack Tame. But if I typed in, uh, I could type in politicians, I can type in developers, I can type in the name of whoever I want. Uh, and obviously, when you look at something like Asia City, which is one mm. of the big trusts used in New Zealand, that had over 
500,000 results when you put that name in. And these documents uh, sometimes are just listed, they're just buildings, it's any time someone's name is mentioned somewhere. Mm. So uh, in terms of here at TVNZ, we are not data journalists. I don't have the ability to sit there and go through those documents and forensically and identify everything. The Herald do have data journalists, but we also relied a lot on our international partners on picking out some of those things related to New Zealand. And, and why should we trust the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists? Because this is, this is the aim of what they're wanting to do. They are wanting to shed light. They are wanting to uncover the things that people don't want us to know about. As I said, they're non-profits. They're just doing this to get the best journalism out there that they can. Mm. Uh, these documents, they obviously make sure these documents are correct. They've gone. The legal process is huge. When, when, when you're looking through all these stories and all the information that's coming through, as I have been doing for months now, the amount of work that goes mm. into this by so many of these journalists is quite incredible uh, in terms of double triple, quadruple checking everything, going to lawyers around the world. Mm. And when you're talking about big celebrities and politicians, uh, you have to be very, very careful about what you say. And I think that's one of the interesting things with this is that a lot of what we're talking about here is not illegal. It is celebrities uh, or, or politicians or whoever they may be using offshore trusts to put money elsewhere so they therefore may not have to pay tax in certain jurisdictions. But at the same time, a lot of criminal behaviour goes on by other people. They use these trusts mm. to funnel money through all sorts of dodgy deals. And the big question really is around the morals and the ethics of this. Should people, should the most wealthy people in society be able to avoid paying tax in this way, uh, avoid paying all the tax they should? Mm. They might pay some tax in some jurisdictions, but not in others. Should they be able to do that when we're at a time when inequality is growing, uh, when governments need that tax take? They are avoiding paying the tax that the rest yeah. of us have to. All right. It's a pertinent question to end on. Thank you so much for your time and your work as always, Katie. That is One Thank News you. reporter Katie Bradford. Hey, our Q&A. Q&A is back after the break. Over the past few months on Q&A, we've brought you several interviews and stories about Afghanistan's fall to the Taliban. On Thursday, the government confirmed it's sending a special representative to Kabul. But tonight on Sunday, a former New Zealand army captain in Afghanistan reveals the extraordinary measures she's been taking to try and save Afghans who helped New Zealand in the war and are still stuck in Afghanistan. Our children are sick. We have nothing, we don't have food, we don't have water. We are hiding somewhere in Kabul and we cannot go anywhere. They're searching door to door. How many of the people on your list got out before the airport bombing? None. I had 43 families, 282 people, not a single one of them got out. You can see that story tonight on Sunday, 7.30 TVNZ1. Kuomotu, that's Q&A for this week. Nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for watching, thanks for your messages, thanks to my Q&A colleagues. Hey tērā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.